Criminology is a true crime podcast that may contain discussion about violent or disturbing topics. Listener discretion is advised. to welcome everyone to episode 11 season two of criminology and morph it has been a heck of a last week that's that's all i can say news of the arrest of joseph d'angelo morph dropped after we had already recorded episode 10 so episode 10 was in the can this unbelievable news broke that has rocked the true crime world you know, you and I had to scramble, come together, do a bonus episode. We had to, right? There was information. We had to get it out. Yeah, like you said, this week has really been insane from the amount of news and coverage that this case is getting. So the true crime world really took notice this week of the case, and, and it was a big topic of discussion, and rightfully so, because it's it's an incredible case, and it's one of the biggest uh, unsolved cases in true crime history at this point. Well, Morph, I've covered a lot of unsolved cases, a lot that have been aged, right? As this one was, it's almost unprecedented to have this kind of news break on a case this big. And I think that's why so many people have been captivated by it. A lot of people that didn't even know the case saw it on the news and were like, Hey, I got to find out more about this case. Yeah, and it's a case that really up until about two years ago, I'd say most of the country wasn't aware of. And over the last two years, it's gotten so much attention through different media outlets and social media, uh, people spreading the word about it, trying to bring awareness to it, that now it has a, a, a national following. And it just so happens that now is the time when it's when there's a big break in the case, when it's hopefully solved and there's a conviction and that could be the end of the uh, line and and we can move on from it but cases like zodiac son of sam charles manson ted bundy those are all household names but many of those killers don't have the kind of victims and history of terror that this killer has yeah i think we've talked about it on previous episodes that i was shocked when we started the research of this case how many people had not heard of it because of how prolific this individual was, how horrific the crimes were, right? You put those two together and it's startling. Now, this episode is dropping on May 5th. And if you're listening to it as it comes out, Morph and I will be at CrimeCon. If you're listening to it on Sunday, We'll be wrapping up. We might be on our way back from CrimeCon. But CrimeCon, Morph, just took on a whole different level. There was already a large number of things planned around the East Area Rapist, the Golden State Killer. So there was already planned to be there victims, family members of victims, you know, other people associated with the case to talk about it, to spread more awareness I, I can't imagine what it's going to be like now, Morph. 
you know, those people are still going to be there, but the talk is going to be somewhat different. Yeah, I think it's going to be more of a party atmosphere. I think there's going to be a lot of celebration because this was this was a win for the good guys and, and taking down a a very bad guy. So I really think it takes on a whole new meaning with this guy being apprehended. And that's what CrimeCon's all about is is solving mysteries, getting justice for, for people that deserve it. And I can't think of a better way for this to happen or a better time for this to happen than – being the weekend of, of CrimeCon right before it. I know we'll talk about some of what went down at CrimeCon in episode 12, but for now, more let's talk a little bit more about the capture of the Golden State Killer, East Area Rapist. There's so many different monikers, it's hard to say them all. And like Mike mentioned, before episode 10, we had a bonus episode that we released, and that detailed some of the preliminary information about the suspect in this case, Joseph J. D'Angelo, but we also mentioned that we wanted to finish telling the story the way we had originally planned. You know, it wouldn't be fair to leave out some of the victims of this predator, so we're going to make sure that we tell their story. And as awful as the East Area Rapist crimes were in Northern California, you know, he sunk to an all-new level of depravity in Southern California, and we have to document that part of the story to honor those victims. Their stories need to be told. And while many of you out there know how bad this guy was, by the end of the season, we think that you'll really understand the full scope of all of his crimes. So we said in the beginning our plan was to do 12 episodes to wrap this case up. We hope that we could spread some awareness of the case, hopefully generate some tips, and then we would take a break before starting season three. But then wouldn't you know... This guy, D'Angelo, gets caught, gets arrested, and that has thrown a curveball into our plans in a good way. You know, there's no way that we can bail on this case after 12 episodes. There's just way too much going on with it, and we don't know what's going to happen next. So D'Angelo already had his first arraignment, and he was charged with the murders of Brian and Katie Maggiore, in Sacramento County. All right, Your Honor, on the 130 calendar, page two, in custody, D'Angelo. Is uh, Joseph James D'Angelo your true and correct legal name? I'm sorry? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You're before the uh, Sacramento Superior Court for two reasons. One, to inform you there is a warrant in hold for you out of Ventura County for two counts of murder, 187 subdivision A of the penal code, that case is 116-1124. There is no bail placed on you from Ventura County. The Sacramento County Superior Court, you're charged by way of a felony complaint, 18FE-008017. Complaint filed April 25, 2018, alleges two counts of murder and a special circumstance. Count one, alleges on or about February 2nd, 1978 in the county of Sacramento. You did willfully, unlawfully, and with malice aforethought murder Katie Majori, a human being. In violation of Penal Code Section 187, Subdivision A, it is a felony. It's further alleged in the commission of that murder that you personally used a firearm of unknown caliber. It's alleged as a violation of the Penal Code Statute. 
12022.5 subdivision A makes it a violent and serious felony. Count two, for a further and separate cause of action with the charges set forth in count one, it's alleged on or about February 2nd, 1978, in the county of Sacramento, that you unlawfully, willfully, and with malice aforethought murdered Brian Majori, a human being. It's again further alleged during the commission of that murder that you personally used a firearm, again of unknown caliber. So it's charged as a violation of Penal Code Section 12022.5, Subdivision A. There is a special circumstance alleged against you, and that reads as follows. It is further alleged that the offenses charged in counts one and two are a special circumstance in that the defendant committed multiple murders with the meaning of a penal code statute 190.2, subdivision C, subdivision 5. You have a lawyer, Mr. D'Angelo, can you afford one, or are you asking the court to appoint you a lawyer? Did you not understand the question? I have a lawyer. Is that the public defender? Yeah. Let me appoint the public defender, Ms. Howard, to accept representation on behalf of your office. Thank you. Yes, I will. Diane Howard from the Public Defender's Office. I'll accept the appointment for Mr. D'Angelo. I'll acknowledge the seat of the complaint. At this time, Judge, I'd also like to reserve the right to make any later objections to any potential penalty or punishment in respect to this complaint. Um, Mr. Grippy and I have agreed on a further continuance court date of May the 14th at 8.30 in this department, please. Mr. Griffin, that works? That's correct. Okay, I'll give the order May 4th, 8th, 36th, and 4th, so you know that. Anything else Honor. we need to do this afternoon? No, Your Honor. Okay. Ms. Howard? Yes, sir. Anything sorry. else? No, thank you, sir. Okay, May 14th, 8th, 31, Mr. D'Angelo. Correct, why don't we take a recess? Everybody out, we can continue with that. All right, everybody stay in your seats. So that's the audio from the arraignment, and the audio quality is, is pretty low. But then again, D'Angelo, when he spoke, which wasn't much, was was in almost in a whisper. I think Mike described it as sounding like the godfather. And he's in an orange jumpsuit, handcuffed to a wheelchair, and it seemed like he nodded off as if he wasn't there, he was halfway out of it, falling asleep. Yeah, I swear he fell asleep two or three times. And this was not a long proceeding, right? It, it lasted, what, two and a half, three minutes long? Maybe maybe longer than that, but not very long at all. And there, there's been some speculation that he might have been under medical care and, and perhaps had been given something that, that made him that way. And that would not surprise me at all. He looked medicated to me. He looked like he was in la-la land a little bit. Now, there's been some reports that he's on suicide watch which possibly could explain being medicated. But now the details will start to emerge. People that knew him may come forward and have information to share. And I think we're starting to see some of that already more. They've interviewed his neighbors. They're telling stories about the fact that this guy would yell at them if they mowed their grass too early in the morning. He was kind of combative with people. I also saw something about the fact that they thought he talked to himself. He yelled he yelled to himself even. But you know they're gonna get to his coworkers. They're gonna get there's some people that knew this guy. And those are the details that, that are going to come out and I can't wait for him to come out. And not just that, but other crimes may come to the surface. 
and there may be trial information coming soon or a plea deal. So there's just way too many moving parts here to walk away from this case now. We need to stick with it and bring you all the details as they come in. And I, for one, I'm looking forward to it. You know, putting the puzzle pieces together of the suspect's life, looking at some of the aspects of this case again. Now, one thing we definitely intend to do is reach back out to the many investigators and victims in this case and get their take on the unmasking of this killer. And we mentioned victims in this story. We've talked about them. There are many. But I think, Morph, we would be remiss if we didn't count D'Angelo's family as victims. Now, not, obviously not in the same way as the rape or the murder victims. You have to think that D'Angelo's children woke up one day last week to find out that their father was a serial rapist and murderer. And from everything we know so far, Morph, and that's not a lot, but you know, apparently these are good people and they have had their world turned upside down. So the case is very fluid right now, but we'll figure it all out as we move along. But we definitely hope that you'll stick with us and see where this case goes from here. And we were blown away this week to have Time Magazine mention criminology in their article about the Golden State Killer case. And we know a lot of people wanted to hear this story because it showed in our download numbers. This week, we really shot up the iTunes chart. And that's just a testament to how big this case is and how many people are fascinated by it and want to hear more about it. All right, Morph. So before we recap last week and we get into episode 11, we've got to do our Patreon shout outs. We had a lot of new Patreon support, which is amazing. We had Sylvia C., Dana Scarpula, Richard Williams, Jamie Hibbert, Heather Wright, Jonathan Hagar, Tracy Robinson, Tanya Geldback, Amy Hall, Marsha McDonald, Anna Skullstad, Scott Batzel, Marianne Shadricks, Sarah Lambros, Katie Morgan, Rebecca Moncaster, and Carrie McGarry. That is a lot of new support, Morph. Yeah, and we say it every week how thankful we are that these people are willing to help us and support the show, but it's very true. We, we can't thank you enough. We really appreciate it. All right, we left off episode 10 by saying that the East Area Rapist wouldn't strike again in Northern California. In his last attack, July 1979, his intended victims got the jump on him, and he was witnessed without his mask before they were able to flee the home and escape unharmed. We ended the episode with retired Contra Costa County investigator Larry Crompton telling us how not catching the East Area Rapist would cause him to wake up at night. While Larry Crompton and the rest of the Northern California residents wondered where the East Area Rapist had gone, residents in Southern California were about to deal with a deadly predator of their own he would become known as the Night Stalker. And we're not talking about Richard Ramirez. This Night Stalker was before Ramirez. Years later, this offender would become known as the original Night Stalker. In Santa Barbara County in Southern California, Goleta was an unincorporated town in 1979. Boasting temperatures that averaged 70 degrees year-round, it was close to the beach and home to lots of surfers. The town itself was quiet, laid back, and the crime rate was very low. Things were quiet, and that was perfectly fine for residents there. 
But in September of 1979, a strange incident occurred, which seemed to mark the beginning of a troubling period in Goleta. In late September, a woman was in her home on the 5400 block of Berkeley Road one evening when a man knocked on her door. He told her that his dog had been hurt after running between her house and the one next door. After the dog ran off, he had called for it and the dog hobbled back to him and fell on the ground at his feet. He first knocked on the door of a neighbor of this woman, but did not get an answer. Then he found this woman at home. He asked her if he could use her phone to call a friend to come pick him and his dog up. She allowed the man in and let him use her phone. And a few minutes later, a vehicle pulled up and took the man and his dog away. Later that evening, the next door neighbor who wasn't home when the injury occurred to the dog arrived home and found that somebody had turned her faucet on in her front yard. The front yard was flooded. The next day, the man with the injured dog returned and caught both neighbors outside talking to each other. They discussed what had happened the day before. The man told the women that he had rushed his dog to the veterinarian and that it required nearly 70 stitches for what the vet thought was a stab wound. The three of them walked to the area between their homes and in the rear part of the yard looking for something that could have injured the animal, but they didn't find anything of interest. Following the dog incident, there were various reports of people being seen walking through residence yards at night, prowler incidents, fences and gates being disturbed. A week later, on the 5400 block of Queen Anne Lane, just a mile north of where this dog incident occurred, a couple was attacked while they slept at around 2 a.m. on October 1st. A 33-year-old woman and her 32-year-old boyfriend, both computer programmers, were fast asleep when the female victim woke up to find a man at the foot of her bed. He was shining a flashlight in her eyes. She grabbed her boyfriend, waking him up. The pair could not see if the intruder was wearing a mask or not. The man hissed from behind the light. Don't move, fucker. I gotta have money. He instructed the pair to turn over onto their stomachs and then threw pre-tied lengths of nylon twine to the female victim. He ordered her to tie up her boyfriend's hands behind his back. After he was secured, the attacker then tied the female victim's hands behind her back. Their hands were tied very tightly, and both victims immediately began losing circulation in their hands. The intruder then tied the woman's ankles together loosely. Without the light in their eyes, they finally saw that the man was wearing a ski mask. The stranger reiterated that he had to have money. He warned the terrified couple that he wouldn't hurt them if they gave him money. The female victim volunteered that there was money in her purse in the kitchen. The assailant began looking around through their belongings and going into their closet. He then returned, stood over the pair and hissed, I'll kill you fuckers. He walked out of the room and started to ransack the rest of the home. After a few minutes... The man came back and told the female victim that he couldn't find her purse and ordered her to come with him to show him where it was at. He untied her ankles, allowing her to walk by his side. He dragged her roughly towards the kitchen, where she told him that her purse was. When they got to the living room on the way to the kitchen, the man forced her down on the floor and then retied her ankles. The attacker left the room and returned later with shorts that he threw over the woman's head. Although her head was covered by the shorts, she could see that the attacker was shining his flashlight up and down her naked body. She then heard him breathing heavily, and she could tell that he was masturbating. 
as he masturbated, he told the woman, now I'm going to kill you. Cut your throat. The masked intruder walked away from her and went into the kitchen. She could hear him saying out loud over and over, I'll kill him. I'll kill him. She immediately got the sense that the man did plan to kill her. And without hesitating, she jumped to her feet and started hopping down the hallway towards the front door. She had trouble seeing clearly with the shorts on her head and tripped near the front door. She stood up and with her bound hands struggled open the door, but she somehow did get it open and hopped outside. Once she was outside, the bindings on her ankles came loose and she tried to run and scream. She didn't make it far before she felt the attacker's hands on her back, pushing her down to the ground. The masked man held a knife to her throat and told her that she had better be quiet. He scooped the woman up and started to escort her back towards the front door of the house. When they got inside, he threw her down and tied her ankles once again. He went to the bedroom to check on the male victim and found that he had escaped through a sliding glass door into the backyard, but was trapped by a wooden fence. The male victim started to smash against the fence with all of his weight, screaming as he did this. But eventually he realized that he couldn't get through. He couldn't get away, so he hid in some bushes. The assailant ran out of the house into the backyard, looking around for the male victim. But he didn't see him in the bushes. And then suddenly, the attacker could hear the female victim screaming from the front yard. She had once again got to her feet and made it out the front door screaming. The intruder ran back inside through the house towards the front door. As the attacker made it out the front door, he saw the terrified woman racing away from him screaming. Luckily for this couple, the next door neighbor was an FBI agent who was awake and had heard their screams. He grabbed his gun and raced outside. As he neared the driveway of the victims, he saw a dark figure race by him on a bicycle. The FBI agent ran to his car and jumped in to pursue the man on the bike. When he tried to start it, the engine wouldn't start, something that was not out of the ordinary with his car. After a couple tries, he started the car up and raced off in the direction of the bike rider. He lost sight of the cyclist, but turned left on the North Kellogg and cruised quickly, but kept his eyes open heading south towards San Patricio. And at that intersection, he once again caught sight of the man on the bike who was pedaling for his life. The FBI agent floored his car, gained on the suspect, getting within about 100 yards of him. At this point, the fleeing assailant had to know he could not outrun this car. So he jumped a curb, bailed off the bike, escaping on foot into some bushes. As the FBI agent stopped near the spot where the suspect had ditched the bike, he caught sight of him scaling a fence and jumping into a backyard. At this point, the FBI agent didn't know who he was or exactly why he was chasing him. And he doesn't have backup. So he ends up giving up the pursuit. He drove back to the victim's residence and he found the pair outside, half naked and scared. By this time, neighbors had called the police and they arrived on the scene within minutes. The FBI agent walked the officer through what had happened and then led them to the spot where he had chased the suspect to. When they arrived on the scene, they found the bike, a 10-speed. It was later determined that the bike belonged to a probation officer on the 1000 block of North Patterson Avenue, just north of the victim's home, and it had been stolen earlier that evening. The probation officer who owned the bike was not a suspect. 
Meanwhile, the police had also found a black steak knife that the assailant had wielded during the attack. Shoe prints left by the suspect indicated that he was wearing Adidas running shoes, approximately size 9. The tracks seemed to indicate that he had left on foot, heading back towards the direction he was chased from. Back at the crime scene, the victims and the FBI agent described the fleeing attacker as being white, about 5 foot 10 to 5 foot 11, with a medium build. The victims described the attacker's voice as being soft-spoken, but it appeared as if he was trying to make it sound deeper. The point of entry appeared to be a pride sliding glass door, possibly pried with a screwdriver. Police discovered footprints in the victim's yard. The attack seemed random. It wasn't typical of the area, and police didn't find any additional leads. Although being out of the ordinary, it wouldn't be the last unusual event in that area of Goleta. Almost three months later, on December 29, 1979, there was a burst of suspicious activity and burglaries. In the early evening, someone attempted to enter a home on the 5300 block of Pareo Drive using a screwdriver, but they were not successful. The attempted burglary at this address stood out to neighbors because just a few homes away, an elderly woman in her 70s had been bludgeoned to death in 1974. The woman, whose name was Eva Taylor, was recently widowed at the time of her murder. She had married her husband Grover in 1970, but he passed away in 1972. Her daughter at the time of the murder lived in Santa Barbara, but the rest of her family lived in Sacramento County. Investigators in the Eva Taylor case determined that there was no sexual attack on the woman, but there was a sexual component, possibly to the attack. It seemed as if her killer had gone through her undergarments. There's also evidence that Taylor's killer may have prepared a meal and ate it at her kitchen table. When he left, it appeared that he tried to set the home on fire by leaving the gas stove flame on low. Her killer had made off with a few small pieces of jewelry that were not very valuable. The sliding glass door in Taylor's home had been pried open with a screwdriver that was found at the scene, and it was traced to Raytheon, a company in Santa Barbara County. A young girl had been babysitting next door that night, and she had received a couple of hang-up phone calls. Earlier in the day, she had seen a suspicious man watching her, possibly driving a news or cable truck. And police received a break during a neighborhood canvas when it was learned that a resident had seen a young man, possibly in his late teens or early 20s, jumping over Taylor's fence. A sketch of the suspect was made, but it didn't lead anywhere. And four decades later, the Taylor murder remains unsolved. Other incidents were reported on the night of December 29, 1979. On Hannah Drive, just south of the attempted burglary on Pareo, thieves entered a home and made off with cash and jewelry. The jewelry itself wasn't very valuable. Possibly the most interesting event or burglary that night happened on the 5400 block of Queen Anne Lane the same street only two-tenths of a mile from the early morning attack on the couple three months earlier. A woman who lived next door to the home that was burglarized recounted what she had witnessed shortly before the burglary occurred. It was about 6.10 p.m. when she saw a woman standing near the front porch of the property. The homeowner wasn't home. He had gone to see a movie. Later, at around 7 p.m., she saw a man she didn't recognize on the porch ringing the doorbell to the home. Again, 
She knew these people were not the residents of the home, but she didn't pay much attention and she went inside. A half hour later, around 7.30, she had to run an errand and left her house. As she left, she once again saw the same man she had seen earlier. He appeared to be ringing the doorbell as she drove off. At about 9.30 p.m., upon arriving home, the homeowner entered his house and discovered that it had been robbed. Investigators discovered that the point of entry had been a pride garage door. Inside, the thief had made off with several pieces of jewelry and had also pried open a safe. Later, the eyewitness who had seen people on the porch would describe the male she had seen as being about five foot eight to six foot tall, 25 to 30 years old with a mustache and wearing a knit cap. The female that she saw was described as being in her 20s and about five foot four and having a large pointed nose. The property that was burglarized backed up to a school and directly across the schoolyard was Windsor Court. Around 6 p.m. on the same night of this burglary, a family on Windsor Court left the house for the evening before returning at 9.45 p.m. As they pulled in, their light shined into their living room and they saw a man inside crouch down and take off across the room towards the back of the house. The man exited their house through the back door and ran through their backyard over their fence into the schoolyard. As he crossed the fence, automatic sprinklers on the school property came on. The couple immediately called police, who arrived quickly. Police searched the home to make sure it was safe to enter. Nothing seemed to be missing, but the family's poodle had been struck in the eye with some sort of object. I've read conflicting reports about this dog. One report said the dog was injured, and the other one stated that it was killed. The witnesses described the man they saw fleeing as being in his late teens to 30 years old. He was wearing what looked to be a hat similar to a fisherman's hat. Police found that the sliding glass door had been pried open. As they looked around the yard, they discovered footprints, which they later cast and photographed. They matched the footprints found at the Queen Anne attack three months earlier. Given the close timing of these two occurrences and the fact that only a schoolyard separated them, it's very possible that these two burglaries are related. The flurry of events on the night of the 29th continued. On the 700 block of Avenida Picania, at a condo complex, a bike was stolen sometime that evening. After midnight, around 1.30 on the morning of the 30th, a woman who lived just a few doors down from where the bike was stolen woke to the sound of someone trying to get inside her home. But the prowler left after not having success. Her sliding glass door was partially open and she thought that the person coming in might be her son. She called out to him, but her son answered her from upstairs. And then a dog started to bark, and she heard the person outside of her home run off. Another nearby condo, which was vacant, was broken into. This condo was at 769 Via Picania. A man named Dr. Robert Offerman, an orthopedic surgeon, lived next to the vacant condo that had been broken into. He and a woman he had been seeing, Dr. Deborah Manning, a clinical psychologist, were due to play a game of tennis with friends of theirs. The friends arrived to pick up Offerman and Manning at 11 a.m. at his condo located at 767 Avenida Picania. They rang Offerman's doorbell, but didn't get a response. They noticed that his sliding glass door was open, so they decided to go inside. When they did, they found two dead bodies. They raced out and called police. 
The Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Department arrived soon after. They entered the home and checked the scene out. The two bodies were located in Offerman's master bedroom, and they would quickly verify that the bodies were that of doctors Offerman and Manning. It was easy to see that the pair had been murdered, and police secured the crime scene and started to examine the single-story, two-bedroom condo that was attached to the vacant condo next to it. Police examined all the entry points into the condo and found that the front door was locked and secure with no evidence of pry marks or tampering. A green Christmas wreath hung on the door and the porch light was on. When they checked the south side of the residence, police found three different sliding glass doors leading into the home. One led to the living room, one to the dining room, and the other to the master bedroom. They found that the one leading into the master bedroom was closed but was not locked, and there was no evidence that it had been broken into or pried. The dining room door was closed and locked, but the one that led into the living room stood wide open. There were noticeable pry marks found on this door, and the door had been partially pulled away from the wall, leaving plaster residue on the floor. Outside of the home, on the ground, four feet away from this door, was a plastic bag that contained cooked turkey meat and bones. The turkey remnants were determined to have come from the leftover Christmas turkey in Offerman's refrigerator. As they walked around the yard, investigators discovered footprints. The footprints were from an Adidas running shoe and were later found to be consistent with prints found at the scene where the intruder bludgeoned the poodle. They were also consistent with the footprints found at the home of the couple that were attacked on Queen Anne Lane. These prints indicated that the killer had likely climbed the fence where a scuff mark was located and walked along the edge of the house, stopping and looking through partially open shutters that allowed him to see into the master bedroom. It appeared that the killer lingered in this area of the yard for some time. In addition to the footprints at the scene, police also discovered dog track. However, neither Offerman nor Manning owned a dog. After examining the area, they found that the vacant condo next to Offerman's condo had been broken into, and police found the same shoe prints in the yard of the vacant condo that they had found in Offerman's yard. They found a piece of twine under the bathroom sink in the vacant condo. Investigators carefully sifted through clues inside the bedroom and examined the bodies of Offerman and Manning. Robert Offerman was found on the floor of the master bedroom on his knees with his buttocks in the air. He was clutching a piece of twine in his left hand that was wrapped around his wrist. He had been shot once in the chest and three times in the back. Deborah Manning was found nude in the bed a few feet away. She was lying face down. Her hands were tied behind her back and she had been shot once in the back of the head execution style. Both victims had been shot with the same gun, a 38 caliber. Cash and credit cards were found in her purse nearby. Police initially theorized that it was a robbery gone wrong, but since Manning's purse and its contents were found, there was some reason to doubt this. However, they did discover that Dr. Offerman's medical bag and a Minolta camera were missing. Neither victim had been sexually assaulted, but evidence showed that the pair had had sex with each other that night. On a dresser, detectives found a business card for Apollo Airlines, but they had no idea if it had been placed there by the killer or if it belonged to one of the victims. They also noted in the report that the thermostat had been turned to the off position. 
Based on all of the evidence at the crime scene, police theorized that the couple were in bed when an intruder gained entry through the sliding glass door in the living room and took the couple by surprise at gunpoint. He may have told the couple that he was going to rob them because Manning's two valuable rings were stuffed between the mattress and headboard, probably an effort on her part to keep them from being stolen. Since Manning was still bound and Offerman had a partial binding on his hand, the investigators felt that the murderer thought that he had both victims secured. But Offerman somehow broke free, charged at the intruder before he was shot multiple times. Then it seemed likely that the killer walked over to Manning, who was lying face down, and shot her once in the back of the head, execution style. After a canvas was done of people that lived near the crime scene, Police found people that had actually heard the gunshots just after 3 a.m. One neighbor heard what he thought was a gunshot, followed by three more gunshots, and then a slight pause, followed by a final gunshot. This was approximately at 3.05 a.m. on the morning of December 30th. One neighbor heard what he described as being firecrackers and went out into the parking lot but didn't see anything unusual. He assumed that the sounds were firecrackers since it was almost New Year's Eve. Another witness had heard tires screeching and looked out their window at about 3.15 a.m. When they did, they saw what looked like a white boxy car driving through the parking lot without its headlights on. None of these neighbors and potential witnesses reported seeing a person in the area, so there were no descriptions of the killer. The bike that had been stolen that night was later found on Crown Avenue, less than a mile northwest of Avenida Picanha. The location where the bike was found on Crown Avenue was just southwest of the 1000 block of North Patterson, and this was where the bike had been stolen from in the Queen Anne Lane attack three months earlier. Based on where the bike was found, investigators searched the area for clues or evidence over the following two days. On the 800 block of North Kellogg, police found twine in two different yards. That was the same twine used to bind Offerman and Manning as well as the twine found in the vacant condo next door to them. Police retraced the killer's likely steps from Avenue to Picanha to where the bike was found, and they crossed over Windsor Court and Queen Anne Lane along the way. Both of those streets had homes that were burglarized in the preceding three months, and the couple that were attacked three months earlier lived on Queen Anne. Near North Kellogg and Normal Way, police found footprints that matched those found at the Offerman-Manning crime scene, Alongside the footprints were dog tracks. These prints led down to the San Jose Creek bed, and police tracked them for a while, but lost the trail in the creek bed. Pieces of twine were also found in this area. It seemed as if the killer walked or rode the stolen bike from the crime scene and then ditched it where it was found before walking the rest of the way into the creek bed. Whether or not the killer rode the bike or walked the entire way, it seemed as if the dog accompanied him the whole way from the murder scene. The area of the creek that the killer walked through to make his escape led up to North Patterson, to the approximate location where the bike had been stolen from the probation officer three months earlier. Since all of the prowling and attacks during this three-month period took place very close to the San Jose Creek bed, the offender would later be dubbed the Creek Killer. Investigators turned the lives of Offerman and Manning upside down, searching for answers. Robert Offerman was in the process of a divorce at the time of his murder, 
and had been separated since 1978. And Manning had just completed a divorce two days before the murders. Her ex-husband, like Offerman, was an orthopedic surgeon. As is typical in most murders, those closest to the victims were people with obvious motives or looked at first. Offerman had an estate consisting of millions of dollars worth of holdings and investments. Manning's ex-husband took and passed a lie detector test, and investigators quickly ruled out those closest to the victims as being involved in their murders. Detectives looked at the timeline leading up to the murders to see if any clues could be found that might lead to the killer. They discovered that Manning, who worked and lived in Santa Maria, California, had been receiving hang-up phone calls shortly before her death. In addition, someone had tried unsuccessfully to force entry into her residence on Stansbury Drive. She was involved with the rape crisis hotline, was an avid jogger, swimmer, and tennis player, and she had moved to Santa Maria in 1976 from Boston. Robert Offerman had a successful medical practice in Santa Barbara. He had been married in 1964 and had one child. Like Manning, he was an avid jogger and tennis player. Both victims were dating different people and weren't exclusive. Deborah Manning was a very private person, so friends and co-workers didn't know much about her private life. Robert Offerman was a member of a Porsche club in Santa Barbara. Both victims were friendly and much respected people in Santa Barbara County without any known enemies. Authorities found one witness that was able to provide important details that may have been directly related to the Manning-Offerman murders. The witness reported that around midnight on December 30th, just three hours before police believed the murders happened, they heard what they believed was Offerman's Porsche pull into his normal parking spot near his condo. The witness heard the voice of two men talking, one they were sure was Offerman's, but they didn't recognize the second voice. The witness also heard a woman's voice talking, but didn't know Manning well enough to say whether or not it was her voice. Police continued to backtrack to the days before the murders, but didn't see anything out of the ordinary. Police did find that Offerman and Manning had attended a party on December 28th in which several doctors and lawyers were present. The party was held at nearby Toltec Place, and that street will be significant as we move along through some of these Southern California cases through the end of the season. There have been rumblings that Manning's office janitor had a run-in with a young man who was a patient of hers, and the janitor was badly beaten by this youth. The young man, with ties to Sacramento, was no stranger to police. In fact, his name was one of several that had come up as possible suspects in some of the burglaries going on in Goleta. But it wouldn't be until two years later when he would be connected to this case. That young man was a neighbor of a man who was heavily involved with real estate in Santa Barbara County. This man that was involved in real estate owned a dog that supposedly only had three toes on one of its paws. And one of the rumors was that Paul Prince found at the Manning-Offerman crime scene only had three toes on one paw. But it was more likely that the dog's prints were only partial prints. But that didn't stop investigators from talking to several veterinarians in Santa Barbara County to see if they had treated any dogs recently with three toes on one paw. Another rumor that circulated in the Offerman Manning murders was that Robert Offerman himself was sexually assaulted. This isn't true, 
And it's likely that this rumor started after his body was found nude, face down, and with his buttocks in the air. After these murders, the suspicious activity in Goleta died down and police were stumped as to why anybody would want to kill the doctors. Police did, however, look into two suspicious rapes of young girls in 1979 along the San Jose Creek by strangers, but they couldn't connect them to the Offerman Manning murders. A few months after their murders, the Sacramento Sheriff's Department caught wind of the double homicide and felt that based on initial reports that the East Area Rapist might have gone down to Goleta and had been responsible for the attacks. Sheriff's detectives in Sacramento and Santa Barbara are investigating the possibility that the killing of a Goleta Valley orthopedic surgeon and his psychologist girlfriend was committed by the East Area Rapist, the B has learned. The victims, doctors Robert J. Offerman, 44, and Deborah A. Manning, 35, were found shot to death in the bedroom of Offerman Santa Barbara County Condominium on Sunday, December 30th, according to Santa Barbara Sheriff Sergeant William Baker. Baker would not be specific, but he said there were some things about the killings and other robberies and burglaries in the vicinity that seemed to go beyond mere coincidence as they compare with the East Area Rapists' activities in Sacramento. Sacramento Sheriff Sergeant James D. Bevins was dispatched to Santa Barbara last week to compare reports with the Santa Barbara detectives investigating the crime. Said Sheriff Spokesman Bill Miller, quote, It looked very much like the same M.O. method of operation, but not enough for us to jump up and say it's the same guy. Some people feel stronger than others, but nobody can say that they feel definitely it's the same guy, unquote. Miller said investigators in Sacramento would be meeting soon to discuss the developments in Santa Barbara, but there had not been a consolidated meeting as of Monday. Information that a similarity existed between the methods of operation of the Galetta Valley Killer and the East Area Rapist originally came from the California State Department of Justice, according to Miller. If the Santa Barbara killings were committed by the same man believed to be responsible for some 44 sexual assaults in Northern California, it would mean that law enforcement's worst fears concerning the rapist had come to pass. On May 17, 1977, the rapist told his 21st victim and her husband that he would kill his next two victims. The attacks continued without a fatality, but psychologists and psychiatrists at the time released a psychological profile of the rapist, indicating that he was a probable paranoid schizophrenic who might be violent or self-destructive if threatened. And his assaults had become more and more bold as he eluded his pursuers. The rapist's earlier attacks came against women who were either alone in their homes or who had small children. Later, his attacks involved couples. In September 1977, the rapist struck in Stockton before returning to Sacramento for a series of seven more assaults. Then, after one final Sacramento attack on April 14, 1978, his 30th in the city and county, the rapist apparently moved his base of operations to other Northern California localities. Subsequent assaults occurred in Modesto, Davis, Concord, San Ramon, and Danville. Only two of the rapist's first 44 victims reported being injured, a Sacramento woman who suffered minor cuts and a Davis woman who was hospitalized after being beaten into submission. But many detectives believe a third person belongs on the wounded list, a Glenbrook youth who was shot in the stomach February 16, 1977, by a prowler that he and his father chased from their backyard. Up to that time, the rapist had displayed a knife to accomplish his attacks. He began using a gun shortly with the shooting incident. In his attacks against couples, which involved more than 15 husbands and boyfriends, the rapist tied the men in bed, placed dishes on their backs to alert him of any movement by the men, then led the women to other parts of the house or apartment to commit the sexual acts. The double killing in Santa Barbara occurred at about 3 a.m. on December 30th, according to Santa Barbara County Coroner's reports. That was the rapist's favorite time for an attack. Neighbors heard the gunshots, Baker said. 
but did not report them, thinking they were holiday firecrackers. The bodies were found later that morning by a friend of Offerman's who had come to pick him up for a tennis date, Baker said. Offerman was in the process of dissolving his marriage, and Manning had been granted a final divorce the Friday before the killings, authorities said. Offerman had been in practice as an orthopedic surgeon in Santa Barbara since 1968. Manning's practice in clinical psychology was based in nearby Santa Maria. That news article ran on February 26, 1980. And as you heard, Sacramento investigators felt that this could be their guy. But Santa Barbara Sheriff's Department didn't think so and dismissed the theory. Galito once again was quiet and the creek killer seemed to have vanished, but he would return. So this is a good place to wrap up episode 11. Like Morph and I talked about, we're getting ready to head down to CrimeCon, which is when this episode will air Saturday, May 5th. And again, you know, we had originally planned 12 episodes and we thought that was ambitious to do 12 episodes. But as we researched the case, there's enough information out there for 12 episodes easily. But with the recent arrest of D'Angelo, we really don't know where this case is going to head. So we're going to finish out telling the story. But at the same time, we're keeping our eyes on any developments that come out. And that will help guide the direction of the podcast. And as we mentioned earlier, we will be talking to a lot of people involved with the Golden State Killer case at CrimeCon. And we're very excited about that. Some of the people we'll be talking to, you've heard or will hear from this season on criminology. And we're looking at ways to try and bring you some of those conversations that we have at CrimeCon in future episodes. We've had a really great response on social media this week on Facebook and Twitter. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at CriminologyPod. You can also find us on Facebook by searching Criminology Podcast or by joining our Facebook discussion group criminology podcast discussion and fans and we wanted to play a voicemail that we got from a listener who wanted to vent a little about this case and he touches on some things that many people have been talking about this week hey guys um max from pittsburgh you guys are awesome um awesome podcast uh just a question for you guys that if you haven't, if you guys end up having a 13th episode, can you please talk about, like, some of the things that no one seems to be talking about? Like, how old this guy was? I mean, he was ransacking when he was, like, 30, 33 years old as a cop. Like, that just seems weird, like, 30 years old doing that. Everyone thought he was, like, a teenager. Um, and also, all the questions, like, with the Majori murders that he got charged for, like, did he admit to that? Because there's no, like, they're just, they just had a, a something that's, like, a, a shoestring or something like that's pretty weak evidence to charge someone. Um, and then did he admit to the ransacker? Like uh, no one's talking about these questions that um, seems like it should be out there. Uh, so maybe please address some of those things. Um, really appreciate you guys are awesome. Have a good one. So that was a great voicemail from Max and he brings up some really good questions that people are asking right now, specifically about the Missouri murders. As far as I know, there is no DNA evidence in that crime. However, there's the MO, the pre-tied shoelaces, and more importantly, there were multiple witnesses to the shooting or the aftermath as the attacker fled the scene. And those witnesses, for the most part, are still alive. So they may be able to identify D'Angelo as the shooter in court. And I think these are some of the things, Morph, right, that are going to come out as we do additional episodes 
because some of this stuff just isn't quite known yet. And he also brings up the age of the Visalia ransacker, you know, again, according to police, which is D'Angelo. He was suspected to be in his late teens, early to mid-20s during the Visalia crimes. He was described as having a baby face. And at the time, he's 30 years old and he's a police officer. So we have to go back and reevaluate what people thought about the ransacker back then, D'Angelo, as it turns out, and where things were wrong, where they were right, where they were accurate, and where they weren't. And those are all things we're going to explore coming up this season. So as we leave you, we want to let you hear some snippets of some podcasts that we think you'll enjoy. So listen to this from our friends at Murder Was the Case. Let's skip the foreplay. Murder. You want to talk about it. Hear about all kinds of nasty things. Sex. Torture. Madness. Dismemberment. And why, more than anything, you want to know why. Well, dear listener, you ain't never had a friend like me. Tune in to Murder Was the Case, featuring author and investigative criminologist Lee Meller. Sometimes solo, often with guests, always horrifically entertaining. Listen to Murder Was the Case on iTunes, Google Play, or go to murderwasthecase.podbean.com. It's gonna be sick. And then don't forget about Forensic Files, the podcast. If you haven't checked that one out, Give it a listen. The cases. We gotta find who wrote this note. We do that, we find the killer. The science. To find out, police used luminol, a chemical which glows when it comes into contact with the iron component in blood. The drama. But where was the rifle? And which man was telling the truth? Forensic Files. The legendary true crime show is now a podcast. Join investigators as they take on the toughest cases with cutting-edge scientific tools. Subscribe now with Apple Podcasts. With new episodes every Monday and Thursday, you'll never miss out on getting your forensic fix.